Chapter 9, The Ashes of Happiness In the revelation of success, I was happy. My happiness flowed into the shoes I made and came back to me in the happiness of my customers. People were very good to us. No one complained. Everyone appreciated our work and paid us many compliments. Unlike my customers in Benito, they would not only pay the prices we asked without haggling, but often they would pay extra. It was not a tip. This job is worth more than you are charging, they would say. You've done a good job. Thank you. My brothers and I lived and worked closely together, a tightly knit, compact, affectionate group. In the first few months at Santa Barbara, after the initial excitement of the new country had worn off, there had been times when I longed to be home in Italy to see my mother again, and Elio, and my sisters, and be among my own folk. Then the Great War broke out, and even had I wanted to go, it was impossible. When Elio joined us, my happiness was almost complete. He was nearly 16 now, and there had been rumours in Italy that 16-year-olds were to be called up to the colours. The rumours proved to be unfounded, but hurriedly we pooled resources and sent the money for him to emigrate to a country where, it seemed, they did not engage in the desperate wars of old Europe. His arrival was a great joy to me. We had always been close together in thought, much closer than my older brothers. He was a tailor, and his mind, like mine, was full of new ideas, new fashions, new styles. He'd wanted to march forward into the future, and after he had opened his shop in Santa Barbara, we began vaguely to plan for the time when Elio Ferragamo would make the clothes and Salvatore would make the shoes to go with them. So, with the war and the coming of Elio, my last flickerings of homesickness disappeared. I became absorbed in the American way of life. I took out naturalization papers. As time passed, and especially after my discovery of the new fittings, our prosperity increased. I engaged other shoemakers to help me fulfill my swelling orders. An old Englishman, Mr. Taylor, who so hated machines that he could not be persuaded to go near them, and a German, Mr. Dietrich. I employed additional men, part-time, on the more mechanical tasks, such as sewing the welts. Each man would take away perhaps half a dozen pairs at night after his normal day's work was finished and bring them back before going to his work in the morning, stitched. I no longer delivered the shoes myself, but employed messenger boys. This proved to be a mixed blessing. Some of the more temperamental stars, Paolo Negre, the Costello sisters, and Dolores del Rio, among them, would say to the boys, You take these shoes right back. I want what's-his-name, what's-the-fellow's-name, your boss, to come and see that they're all right for me and then I would have to go to their homes. Sometimes they would even come down to the shop and give me hell because I'd sent the boy. There was only one slight flaw in the perfection of my happiness. It was a curious feeling, an odd boomerang from the memory of my boyhood time. I recalled how deeply my parents had opposed my desire to be a shoemaker, and I wondered whether, after all, they were right. I was now a prosperous citizen of Santa Barbara, enjoying the respect and even envy of many people, yet I still felt that I was only a shoemaker. Perhaps it would be better, I thought, if I was something more than a shoemaker. Therefore, I did not cease my studies with the success of my search for the perfect shoe. In any case, I wanted to investigate ways and means of treating leathers, of inventing new applications of different materials and a host of other information. I might kill two birds with one stone, I thought, so I enrolled with the International Correspondence School at Scranton, Pennsylvania, as a student in chemical engineering and with a correspondence section of the University of Berkeley, California, for mathematics. For three or four years I studied, and I graduated at last. I was then turned 20, and I suppose at that age I should have been even more sensitive to the sneer shoemaker than I could ever have been as a boy. 
Yet as I studied my diplomas, I felt that they brought me no joy. They have never brought me joy. In later years, I've been the recipient of many honorary degrees. And in August 1955, I was awarded the Italian Gold Medal for exceptional merit in promoting Italian shoe fashion. I do not know whether my diplomas and honorary degrees entitle me to write a string of letters after my name. I do not care. The longer I have lived, the greater has been my satisfaction and pride that I am a shoemaker. Even today, if anyone calls me by any other title, I am annoyed. In this fashion, the years passed. The end of the war came, and for my brothers and me, the horizon seemed clear and unsullied. The shop was earning a fortune, and I had more orders for my shoes than I could cope with. Once again, as in Benito, I found myself living in a niche of my own, happy, contented, asking nothing more than to be allowed to go on making shoes in Santa Barbara. There seemed nothing, except perhaps a shortage of good craftsmen to help me make shoes to prevent the Ferragamo shop going from strength to strength, from prosperity to riches, with at its heart a happy family working and living in a close harmony that must have seemed almost unbelievable to those who have never shared it. It did not last. Perhaps it could not last. The law of life is constant change, but the manner of the change brought me to the edge of heartbreak. The first blow came sometime after the war when the city authorities of Santa Barbara decided to make steep increases in the rates of the company taxation. To evade the impost, the American film company decided to move to Hollywood, about 80 miles away, and in remarkably short time, considering the size and scope of the organization, they had uprooted themselves and stars, technicians, directors, and bit players, and moved lock, stock, and barrel. It killed my handmade shoe business, virtually stone dead. Few of the residents of Santa Barbara had been able to afford the luxury of such the shoes, and with the studio's departure, I found myself cut off at one stroke from the source of my greatest satisfaction. After a while, the studio resumed business with me, sending their orders by post and enclosing photographs of their needs. But it was not the same. The work was smaller in volume and distant in execution. I could no longer give it my sharp vigilance and personal attention. There were many days now when I had no shoes to make at all. At first, I decided to travel by car from Santa Barbara to Hollywood to take additional orders from Stars and Studio. But it was a tedious, inconvenient and costly arrangement. I began to fret at the inactivity. True, there was always plenty of work to do in the repair shop that interested me, not a scrap. Even as a boy new to America, I'd have been opposed to the idea of a shop devoted entirely to repairs. Now the clock had been set back those years. And at a time with, with my new system of measurements, I felt I could make better shoes than anyone else in the world. For me, Santa Barbara was finished, and my thoughts began to turn towards the growing city of Hollywood. Ideas crowded into my mind, wider ideas, bigger ideas, and dangerous ideas, as my brother pointed out when I broached him. I suggested to Secondino, Gerolamo, and Alfonso that we should all move to Hollywood, and that in the film city, we should abandon the repair shop and concentrate entirely on shoemaking. I outlined some of the ideas which had occurred to me during my reconnoitering expeditions to Hollywood. I wanted to expand my production, and I explained in detail how I would set about it and what we should all do. Their answer was an uncompromising opposition. My brothers were proud of me. They loved me. They helped me, and I loved them and had helped them. But on this point, our views were diametrically opposed. They did not understand my passion for my handmaking shoes. Only Elio stood by me. 
To the others, it seemed incredibly foolish to throw aside a repair business, which was earning us a fortune, in order to plunge into a new venture, which would need much greater capital and tell the taking of a much greater risk. In the repair business, they pointed out, we had few overheads, and as we had devised ways of using every scrap of leather, we bought no waste. Customers paid for the work as it was delivered, and so there were no bad debts. On the other hand, the shoemaker works on credit, but pays his trade bills as they become due. Some people never pay their bills. Others pay slowly and late. And while the shoemaker is waiting for his money, he must continue to pay for his materials, his labour and his overheads. Materials are costly and the waste can be high. They were last to be made, numbered, filed and stored. All consumers of valuable time, material and space. There were the problems of bookkeeping. There were personal problems with consumers. There were a thousand things that do not worry the man in the repair shop. When trying to overcome their opposition, I suggested that we might maintain a repair shop if I could also extend my shoemaking business. They said that Hollywood was too small to support a business of the size we had built up in Santa Barbara. They urged me again and again, better an egg today than a hen tomorrow. Of course, my brothers were right from their point of view, and I respected their opinion. But I was right from my point of view, and it was a standpoint I could not abandon. My whole being cried out against my present existence. I had to get away. The arguments went on for weeks and months. I hesitated to take drastic action because I loved them and I had no wish to break the ties that bound us in business as in our daily lives. But at last I could stand it no longer. I suggested that even if Hollywood was too small for a repair shop, we might establish one in the more populous Los Angeles and so at least stay close together. This idea tempted them. And we arranged one day to take the new car, a Hudson 6, was due to be delivered to me that same week, to Los Angeles the following Sunday to seek likely sites for the shop. On the Wednesday, I took delivery of the car. On the Thursday, when I took it out for the first time, the brakes did not work properly. I returned the car to the dealers who made some adjustments and I tried it out again. Once more, the brakes failed. They squeaked. They would not loosen up. They burned hot and they did not stop the car. They were mechanical brakes which operated the rear wheels only, and when they were tightened, the steering wheel kicked back or the car swung about the road alarmingly. Disgusted, I returned the car again. I explained that it was important that everything be in working order on the Saturday night when I was due to spend the evening with my brother-in-law, Joseph Chiampi, on his ranch in Mission Canyon before leaving on the Sunday for Los Angeles. The dealers were extremely apologetic. They promised to change the entire braking system at their own expense, replacing every part with new equipment. We'll give you a factory job, they said. We're sorry you've had all this trouble, but you'll have no more. Late on the Saturday afternoon, they handed the car back. During the drive to the ranch, I had no occasion to use the brakes to any degree that did not occur to me to test them. I was confident the dealers had done as they promised and everything would be all right. Early on Sunday morning, I started off for Los Angeles with a full car. Besides myself as driver, there was Secondino, his wife, his son, my sister Tilodino, and Elio. The weather was clear and fine for the first 30 miles, but as we approached Ventura, a light rain began to fall. Nothing much, just sufficient to wet the surface onto the road. Outside Ventura, there is a railway bridge, and the road underneath takes a sharp curve to the left. I went into the bend, I suppose, at 45 to 50 miles an hour, not terribly fast, and then I touched the brakes to slow us down for the main part of the curve. I remember little of the actual crash. I remember the car twisting over and over, and then I was lying at the bottom of the car with a terrible pain in my thigh. Elio was unconscious. 
his skull fractured and he was losing a lot of blood. Secondino had a smashed shoulder and one ear had been almost sliced from his head. The others, fortunately, escaped almost without a scratch. I do not remember how long we lay there, but we were picked up at last by a train on its way to Ventura. The driver saw the wrecked Hudson lying by the roadside and stopped his train to give help. We were taken to the hospital in Ventura. As it was a Sunday, the hospital was short of staff, but the head doctor came on duty, and we three brothers were placed in the same ward. He discovered that I had a splintered thigh bone. He made no attempt to sew on Secondino's ear, but simply snipped it off, explaining that he had no equipment to do anything else, and anyway, it was too late. Poor Elio lay in the bed alongside me, and for many hours I listened to his laboured breathing. At last it stopped. He died at ten o'clock in the evening without regaining consciousness. His death was like the end of the world. If Elio had not figured largely in this story, it is because his work and mine ran on parallel paths and so did not cross, but he had always been my favourite brother. Now, in my heartbreak and despair, I blamed myself for his death. If I had not been so stubborn, so set upon the Hollywood shop, he would not now be lying dead. For many days I could find no comfort, though I might solve my problems, though I might patch up the differences with my brothers and make a joint success of my new venture, yet I could not bring back Elio from the grave. Never again could we share the little triumphs of our lives. Slowly I came back from despair. Secondino, much less seriously hurt than I, left hospital after ten days, his shoulder in a sling, and returned to Santa Barbara to continue work with Alfonso in the repair shop. It was six months more before I was allowed to go home. At first, the doctors wanted to amputate my injured leg. X-rays showed that splinters of the thigh bone were scattered through the flesh, and the doctors feared that gangrene would set in and threaten my life. In this extremity... Dr. Rexwald Brown, an old friend from Santa Barbara whose wife and friends I'd made shoes, stepped in. He assured me that he would do everything he could to help. He kept his word. He gave me more attention than a father would give his son. When the hospital doctors decided unanimously that the leg would be amputated, Dr. Brown opposed them. He assured them that it was not necessary and that even if the worst happened, they would have time to perform the operation before my life was endangered. After he came to me privately to warn that even if the leg was not amputated, it might be necessary to operate to replace the bone splinters. They watched me day by day, taking many x-rays, and at last it became clear that the limb would heal. I was warned that one leg would be shorter than the other, but, Dr. Brown said, everything possible would be done to minimise the worst effects of the lameness by stretching the injured limb as it healed. The treatment began. It was hideously painful. They used an ancient method of pulling the wounded leg for as long as the patient could stand the pain and then relaxing the pressure. It seemed to me needlessly cruel, and what was worse, inefficient, since the pressure was only temporary, and when it was relaxed, the leg returned more or less to normal. I asked Dr. Brown if there were any other means of accomplishing the stretching, and he assured me that there were none. My mind revolted at the prospect. I have never believed that because a thing is not in existence, it is impossible to invent it. Every discovery only awaits the mind of man. So from my bed, I devised a new type of splint. It consisted of a cylinder, several inches longer than the leg, into which the leg was inserted. One end of the cylinder pushed against the pelvic joints and the pull of the limb was obtained by a device at the foot end, which could be loosened or tightened as required. Once fixed, 
it would maintain the pressure constantly. It lessened the pain considerably and improved the efficiency of the treatment. Dr. Brown was deeply impressed by the invention and later helped me to patent it as the Ferragamo splint. It was eventually produced commercially through a surgical house in Chicago and is still in use today. I'm proud to think that it helped thousands of people all over the world, particularly wounded servicemen of all nationalities during the Second World War as it helped me. When I at last left the hospital, there was only a slight limp in my gait to show that I had been injured. I returned to Santa Barbara, but not to stay. My mind was made up. Hollywood was calling. The future was calling. I felt none of my brother's fears of that future. In Hollywood, there was not one studio, but many. In Hollywood, there would be expansion, improvement, unlimited scope. I reopened my discussions with my brothers, and when the answer was still no, I endeavoured to convince them of my intentions by presenting them with a fait accompli. I could not believe that they would not join me once they were convinced that I could not be swerved from my path. I went to Hollywood, and after a thorough survey of likely sites, I settled on two-storey premises at the corner of Hollywood and Las Palmas Boulevards, consisting of two shops and a room upstairs. Unfortunately, the cost of the 99-year lease, plus the money I would need for alterations and improvements, came to a great deal more than I could immediately raise. To be precise, $35,000 more. I had never borrowed money in my life, except those few liras from an uncle to start my shop in Benito, and the fare to Santa Barbara from my brothers, family affairs which I knew I could soon repay. But I was told that any bank would give me an advance if I approached them. I took a look at the banks in Hollywood, selected the Hollywood Boulevard branch of the Pacific Southwest Bank, entered and presented myself to the manager, Mr. Spencer, armed with all the information I'd been told he would require. We chatted for a little time. He asked me shrewd questions, summing me up from his knowledge of old and new customers, and finally, he asked me to call back on the following Monday when I would receive the board's answer. At the appointed time on the following Monday, I presented myself in his office. Mr. Spencer shook hands with me cordially, saying, I have some very good news for you. The board of directors have the pleasure in welcoming you to our bank and have granted you the loan requested. Elated, I murmured. Thank you, Mr. Spencer. I shall be a very good client. He handed me a note to sign, gave me a checkbook and said, from this moment, you can draw the money you require by writing a cheque for the amount wanted. We shook hands and I started to leave the bank. At the front door, a clerk hurried up to me and said, Excuse me, Mr. Ferragamo, but would you mind returning to the office? Mr. Spencer would like another word with you. Wondering what had happened, I went back. Mr. Spencer, looking a little disconcerted, said, I'm sorry to bring you back, Mr. Ferragamo, but I've almost forgot the most important part of the transaction. I've been asked by the board to report your age as a condition of the loan. How old are you? I looked at him, wondering how he would react to the information that I was only 24. I said, Well, Mr. Spencer, how old would you guess me to be? He stared at me squarely and carefully. Mr. Ferragamo, he said, you are 37 years old. Mr. Spencer, I said, what a guess. Mr. Ferragamo, he replied. I've never missed one yet. We shook hands again and I departed, in haste. In Santa Barbara, I told my brothers what I had done. I told them there was room on the premises for a repair shop as well as a salon. I pleaded with them to stay with me, but it was no use. They would come to Hollywood, but not into business with me. There was nothing left to do but to sell the shop in Santa Barbara and go our own ways, commercially. Day into a shoe repair shop at Hermosa Beach one and a half hours away from Hollywood, 
I into my new venture. I remodeled the shop I had selected for my salon. I rejected the corner site as being too commercial and chose instead the more discreet shop next door. I filled the interior with a series of colonnades designed to shut off the fitting place from the main entrance space and so ensure an atmosphere of discretion and privacy. It was my first essay in an interior decoration, but the colonnades are still there. No one has been game enough to remove them. I opened the shop with a flourish. The stars sent goodwill messages and huge bunches of flowers, and many came in person, including Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford, Gloria Swanson and Paolo Negri, Monty Banks, and the two great illusionists, Maria Palermo and her husband, Morris Cefalo. My life had taken another tack.